Welcome to Dev Talks, a podcast produced by DevTech Systems Inc., where we invite experts from the field of international development to discuss contemporary issues impacting the field and learn about their work. I'm your host, Adrian Uselman. On today's episode of Dev Talks, DevTech CEO Rafael Romeo speaks with Carmen Reinhardt, who currently occupies the role of Minos A. Zambanicus, Professor of the International Financial System at Harvard's Kennedy School. She previously served as Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at the World Bank Group. The pair discussed the current state of public debt in low- and middle-income countries and focus in on the role China and other new debt holders have played in shaping today's debt landscape. With that, I'll now turn it over to Rafael and Carmen. Carmen, thanks for joining me today on DevTalks. Uh, we at DevTech spend a lot of time on governance and public finance issues, and our work has increasingly focused on the unsustainable debt levels that many countries in the developing world are facing, and in particular, the very low-income countries. In our work, we see three principal sort of challenges. The first is the direct impact, sort of knock-on effects that a debt crisis could have on development outcomes, on things like health and, and education indicators that, that everyone monitors very effectively. The second is the debt crisis themselves, which is different from what we've seen in the past, for example, because of PRC lending being present in many of these countries and the financial pressures that come to bear, the sorts of uh, governance issues that arise from these, uh, lack of transparency, etc. Third is the impact on development efforts from debt crises. And, and, you know, what I'm getting at here is the financing issue and what happens when budgets are fungible, when countries are under pressure to finance external debt and countries like the United States and allies feel like there isn't a, there's a humanitarian need. So money is entering the country for humanitarian reasons, but not necessarily being used uh, to finance those, those identified needs. Your work has been at the forefront of this area for over two decades, and in that sense, it's critical you be a part of the conversation, the broader development community, and I expect that there are many people uh, who have read your work at the World Bank and who are really looking forward to hearing your views on this. So with that, why don't we get started? Carmen, how do you see the landscape now, and very concretely, are we in for another debt crisis? Thank you, and, and you know, the answer is... If you look at low-income countries, the question is redundant. We're already there. You know, um, we're not seeing a debt crisis 1980 style. This was in August of 1982. Mexico defaulted. Shortly thereafter, you had ripple effects, Argentina, Brazil. These are mid large middle-income emerging markets. It had a big impact on U.S. commercial banks. And so the publicity, the focus, and the systemic, potentially systemic consequences were very different. But in effect, right now, if you look at the, there are 74 countries that the World Bank classifies as, as uh, uh, middle to low income that are eligible were eligible for the debt service suspension initiative during COVID in which payments were suspended over uh, uh, a period of almost two years, not quite. Um, 
And more than 60% of those countries are already are in debt distress or high risk of debt distress. So, so those are, are, are mostly low income, but not exclusively, right? Sri Lanka has had a debt crisis. They're technically not low income. Uh, Venezuela has been in a debt crisis, or by debt crisis meaning you're in default. Uh, one form or another, one, one, one fragment at least of your debt is in default. And the most recent entrant to the default list is Cameroon, which recently missed some payments. So the takeaway is, are we in for another debt crisis? My sense is the large emerging markets are not poised at this stage, there's, you know, there's tougher times uh, because interest rates are rising. So debt servicing will be rising. Um, there are tough times because high in- periods of high interest rates mean tend to mean lower capital inflows to emerging markets. But that's not a debt crisis. Uh, when I say big middle income countries. I, I put a, still put a question mark on Turkey. Turkey, you know, has been, you know, having every imaginable crisis other than a debt crisis. They've had an inflation crisis. They, you know, they've had a currency crash. Um, it is masked by the uh, domestic policies, but they're having banking problems. So, but so I I leave a question next to Turkey, but no. The, the 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 big takeaway is emerging markets, large emerging markets, are not where they were in the 1980s. But low income countries are a different story. And the list of low income countries that are either in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress has been growing steadily. All the countries that have applied for the common framework for debt restructuring under the common framework are low income countries. So the debtors, as I said, one has to do a dividing line between middle income and 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 low income. Uh, in the middle income category or middle to low income category, another question, another country, two two countries that I like to put big question marks next to are Pakistan and Egypt. So you know, among the higher income is Turkey. Um, among the uh, uh, middle to low is Egypt and Turkey. Um, in in uh, Latin America, Ecuador remains very vulnerable, you know, uh, and 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 so, um, and uh, well, Suriname, Venezuela, Argentina. I in Argentina as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it it's a, it's on a league of its own in that regard because uh, it it's really needs another round of they restructured not only with private creditors, they restructure with the IMF. They still need further restructuring. So speaking about creditors, how do today's creditors differ from those of past crises? And what are your views around uh, the current set of stakeholders? So um, on creditors, uh, the big differences are twofold. As I said, the Earlier creditors were Paris Club, U.S. commercial banks primarily. The new entrants in town 
is on the official side, China is a bigger creditor than the entire Paris Club combined. And, and, and it is big, bigger than the IMF and the World Bank combined. The second entrant that is relatively newer this time around are bondholders. Um, uh, bondholders, um, during the height of very low interest rates, low interest rates forever, uh, you know, emerging markets looked really good. And there was a typical euphoria. This time was different. You know, com commodity prices were going to remain high. Interest rates were going to remain low. And emerging markets and low-income countries were going to be very good investments. And so there was a flurry of bond issuance. Uh, and uh, the bond issuance extended beyond the EM space and started to include what you would call frontier economies. So as a consequence, we have low-income countries, including those uh, uh, recent, like Ghana recently approached both the IMF and the, and the G20 for having their debt restructure. Ghana also has, you know, euro bonds outstanding. So China and bondholders uh, are new. Knowing that China and bondholders and new creditors hold a significant share of world debt, what lies ahead in terms of debt restructuring for countries that are in distress or entering or already in uh, default? It's complicated. And, and I, I think you probably think this is a trivial point for me to make. That is complicated, but it's even more complicated than debt restructurings have been in the past. Debt restructurings have always been complicated in the past for the simple reason that creditors want to be repaid and debtors want haircuts. They want write-downs. And, and, and that is the basic tension, what makes a debt restructuring so long. Um, if you look back historically... Um, the average duration since World War II of, debt re of a debt crisis is seven years, okay? Uh, before World War II, is even longer. But by debt crisis, I don't mean to be clear just one debt restructuring. For example, uh, I mentioned Argentina earlier. Argentina restructured debt in early 2020, and some people would say, ah, oh, that's the end of the debt crisis. That's it. it. It had a successful debt restructuring. That's not true because many debt restructurings are sequential or serial. So you have one, it doesn't solve the problem, not enough debt is written down, and you need another one. And this was also true of Ecuador, right? I mean, Ecuador restructured at the same time as Argentina has already had subsequent restructurings with China. Um, so, um, the nature of debt restructuring is always complicated, but it's exceptionally complicated by the fact that there's a lot of geopolitical tensions between the traditional Paris Club creditors led by the U.S. and China. And, you know, 
to get a successful debt restructuring, you need to have some uh, modicum of intercreditor equity, some basic trust among creditors, at least some basic agreement. And this is proving very difficult. Um, a lot of China's debts are um, collateralized. And they're not collateralized by the you know, traditional, oh, I'm going to go and seize the port. I'm going to go and seize the airport. That sort of gets the news, but the most common form of collateral uh, are escrow accounts in Chinese banks. But they're collateralized. This also creates a problem of seniority. Uh, and bondholders, uh, unlike commercial banks of the 1980s, are many. The commercial banks were a handful, and it was easier for the U.S. government to exert pressure on them. Um, so the, the creditor landscape makes coming to agreement uh, very, uh, very um, difficult. And the proof in this in the pudding, um, the common framework was introduced almost two years ago, there have been no debt restructurings to date. Uh, so my, I will conclude, you know, with not an uplifting, uh, uh, but a rather grim assessment that for many of the low-income countries that uh, we, and middle low-income countries that are in debt distress, it is indeed has elements of a replay of the 1980s in that uh, achieving significant debt reduction, meaning haircuts. And China is very averse to deep haircuts. The typical, and I've written extensively about this, the typical restructuring I'm about to conclude, the typical restructuring uh, China style does not involve principal debt write-offs. It does not involve lowering of interest rates. Sometimes it involves lengthening maturities. Usually it involves some grace period. But grace periods only work if the problem is temporary, not if the problem is really debt sustainability. So uh, I think we are going to see uh, an increasing share as in international interest rates continue to rise, as China cuts back its lending uh, to uh, many developing countries, especially low-income countries. Uh, it's actually increasing the lending to some of the middle-income countries, so it's reprofiling re its, its, its borrowers. Um, we are going to see a long period uh, of um, unresolved debt crises. And I wrote a piece, and I'll conclude here, called The Reversal Problem. And the reversal problem is about the progress that was made in development and in development indicators through about 2015 that we have seen starting to reverse, even before COVID. 
uh, as commodity prices crashed, as then came COVID, then came the uh, Russia-Ukraine war with rising food prices, and now a rise in interest rates, uh, I think it, you know, this this is going to be a, a longer haul in terms of, of, of debt restructuring. What about countries where China has lent a significant amount of money? Or what about countries where China has traditionally had close relations, close diplomatic ties and, and historical relationships? Cases like these, are they not more flexible with their debt restructuring practice given increased exposure? In the case of Cuba, they, they had a token loan that they wrote off. But it's a, really a token amount. Um, and in the, the big loans are the China Development Bank loans. And the China Development Bank loans, um, typically, as I said, it, it's a combination of grace period, some new money. And the new money, it, there's a division between low-income countries and middle-income countries. What they're doing is if you owe me, you know, if you owe the bank a little money, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a lot of money, the bank has a problem. So they've been giving more generous terms in terms of new money to those that they have a lot of exposure to. Um, through the PBOC, the People's Republic Bank of China swap lines. So they're using swap lines like in the old days, the banks used uh, bridge loans. So I mentioned at the outset, we're interested in the financing element as well, which I think is a greatly, greatly under-discussed uh, topic in development. So Juan, can you talk about a country that say has a famine and USAID wants to go in and pay for the famine to stop, you know, this uh, humanitarian situation. That money will enter the country. It will enter its central bank as they try to de deploy expenditure in local currency. And that money will then go to pay for PRC or to pay for euro bondholders. So even ensure the IMF uh, can observe uh, reserves and, and sort of non-decorating external flows. U.S. taxpayer dollars in this case that are grants are very significant in some of these countries that are now having a crisis. For example, Malawi or Zambia, where in Malawi it's roughly 10 to 12% a year, and in Zambia it's a similar amount, a little bit less. This is real money. How do we deal with that? This is new, and we've never seen that before. Well, the, look, the, the, issue that, the issue that money is fungible and that any debt forgiveness by other creditors can be used to repay China is a, is a major concern. It was a major concern at the World Bank also in terms of new lending. Um, and, you know, uh, an example in the Western Hemisphere, not Latin America, but Suriname. Suriname was given an IMF program, and within two months it had paid off the People's Bank of China uh, uh, um, swap line, which was significant. Uh, so, so you know, this was a, a, the, the effort to bring China into the Paris Club indirectly, uh, but they they are facing a, a, a first mover 
problem that is serious because, you know, the, the first mover problem is, you know, you do bondholders or do the U.S. or the, do any of the Europeans want to be the first to give debt forgiveness if they think the, debt for, the, the debts that they forgive will be used to repay other uh, uh, big creditors like like China. Now, l- let me conclude by saying that um, China is getting a lot of bad publicity on this, and I think they're also suffering, to be fair, from being a first-time creditor. You know that that they think they can get you know, more principle than they ultimately will. So they haven't gotten to the bite the bullet stage, uh, if you will. I think they do have a learning process. And to be fair, they're not very happy about writing down their own loans internally in their own banking problems, their bad real estate. So they have an aversion to, 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 to write-offs. And they do not like that you know, the, the haircut approach, even in their domestic system. We know the rationale behind China's lending push was uh, a geopolitical one. Given that the current debt distress situations that will negatively impact these countries' economies and therefore its citizens' quality of life, has this soft power scheme backfired? Also, regarding bondholders, would you consider the debt crisis to be self-inflicted, that is, a result of their exposing themselves to much risk, or is this more a result of external factors? So first on the on the China question, look, there, there's no question that, China, that that behind Chinese lending is a big geopolitical push. However, they also behaved like commercial creditors in the 1980s. You had in after in the period after 2000, you had the HIPIC initiative, the highly indebted poorest country initiative that wrote off the debts of the low-income countries. So these countries had, so you had a situation in which you had high commodity prices, low international interest rates, and these countries had a clean balance sheet on external debt. They looked very attractive for making loans. Um, So they made a lot of loans. And your point about what lies ahead, um, and we have a recent... um, uh, a recent working paper, an MBR working paper on this, um, they have uh, done a dual approach, which goes along the lines of what you were saying of, you know, for those that owe a little money, new lending has stopped. So those countries are going to be left to resolve, I mean, what we basically have is a sudden stop from the East and from the West. From the West, we have the Fed hiking interest rates and less capital flows. From the East, we have a China uh, ceasing to, 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 to make new loans. Um, they continue to make some new loans to big debtors that impacts their balance sheets, like Pakistan, like Turkey, like Egypt, uh, and and Ecuador also um, uh, on the bondholders. Um, look, uh, I I think we go through this um, 
you know, these long cycles in which uh, we went through a period again of very low interest rates. These countries' debts had been forgiven. Commodity prices were high. You were, you know, credit ratings were the first to step in and, and, and provide new credit ratings for sovereigns that had not been rated before. This made it very attractive for bondholders and the eternal search for yield. Uh, is and I, I did want to make one brief comment on the the, the vulture funds. The, the, there is, I mean, uh, Mal, David Malpass in his stint as, as World Bank president had a big sympathy for trying to persuade the U.S. and the U.K. and other money financial centers to adopt policies to limit vulture fund activity because um, they're, you know, debt negotiations are difficult enough without the vulture funds and they have lengthened the time and increased the cost of debt restructuring. So, In terms of the IMF and the Paris Club, is there anything that they can do to help countries that find themselves struggling to repay Chinese debts? Um, the problem is that some of the or, or there is a lack of transparency uh, about contracts. Um, there is a wonderful paper by some of my co-authors, uh, Christoph Trebisch and others, on the lack of transparency. They, they actually pulled out 100 Chinese contracts and their non-disclosure clauses, meaning you don't, disclose the amounts to the IMF, to the, and they're explicit. Uh, and they're, that's a very unique feature. And, and so you have the, the Paris Club membership and the G20 membership not really knowing much uh, about the, the collateral. And it is the norm. The typical collateral they found in these uh, contracts is, you know, um, the debtor country deposits can have the right to deposit in the account but cannot withdraw. Uh, but, of course, you know, the amounts in, in these escrow accounts and so on, based on flows are, are you know, part of what the part of what the creditor committees are trying to get at in terms of information. And, and disclosure. Carmen, thank you so much for speaking with Dev Talks today. We really appreciate your time and it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Dev Talks. We hope you found it engaging and informative. Please be sure to tune into future episodes of Dev Talks available via our website at devtaxis.com. Also available via Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts.